As was mentioned previously, what a delightful joy we have tonight to gather on an occasion like this one to appreciate the great handiwork of God about us and the beauty that we've seen today. And also, of course, the spiritual gifts and blessings that we enjoy through our Savior. The capability we have in freedom to gather even as we are currently. To have lifted up our thoughts together in prayer. To have sung these joyously beautiful songs together. And to have, to have opportunity to allow God's Word to penetrate into our hearts as we look at a beatitude in the Gospel according to Luke. Perhaps by way of introduction for the lesson tonight, it might be fair just to make note a bit about that word beatitude. It does seem to have such a lovely ring about it, doesn't it? The word itself, in fact, means perfect blessedness or perfect happiness. And so it would seem, indeed, it would be a wonderful thing to contemplate various beatitudes that are set before us. No doubt, I suspect, the most quick things to come to our mind when we contemplate the beatitudes are the famous said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, the fifth chapter. The opening one of which was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And some ten verses later it closes with, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall see all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. That set of Beatitudes quite likely is well known to us. Perhaps you've committed them to memory at some point, at some earlier stage in life, or even recently. However, those aren't the only Beatitudes found in the Word of God. We're blessed with seven of them in the Revelation, the last book in the Bible. The book of Psalms has seven of them as well. Interestingly enough, Paul quoted one of them from Psalms, didn't he, in Romans 4, verses 7 and 8. Specifically in verse 8, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. That's taken from Psalm 32. Tonight I wonder, does Luke have any beatitudes within it? I suspect the title of the lesson gave it away that there must at least be one. And we'll turn to the 11th chapter of the gospel according to Luke. In fact, even as Lucas read just a few moments earlier, and revisit this interesting beatitude uttered by our Savior in Luke 11 verse 28. Perhaps it would be fair at that point to appreciate something about the setting of this text and some of the things that you and I might extract from it to aid us in our daily walk with the Heavenly Father above. Might I suggest we first appreciate the setting. It is usually the instance and case that to more thoroughly appreciate and contemplate and even comprehend a given text, what is the setting of that text? What's the circumstance? Who was the writer? What was this audience who was in fact listening? No doubt that will also be of benefit to us also here. Beginning in verse 14 of Luke 11, we appreciate there that our Savior was involved in an incident that would have tremendous ramification for those about him. He, in fact, as he was wont to do, aided a person who was, in fact, beleaguered and beset by being possessed with a devil. A demon, in fact, in the American Standard rendering. However, as Jesus cast out this demon, it, in former days, had left this person dumb, unable to speak. When Jesus cast out that demon, those about were shocked and astounded, and in fact, they charged the Savior with accomplishing this by calling upon the energy and power of none other than Beelzebub. They, in fact, stated Jesus had cast out this demon with none other than the power of the devil himself. Jesus, in a masterful argument, 
utterly destroyed their argument and showed to them that logically it could not possibly have been that he cast out this demon by the power of the devil himself. After the statement of that occasion and and Jesus' discussion with them, he in fact reminded them and all of us as well of the personal responsibility that's ours to ensure that we do not allow ourselves to be overcome with a variety of evilness and iniquity and sin. It was on this occasion, in verse 27, that a woman apparently was so pleased and so astounded by what she had heard and the lesson that the Savior had shared that she pronounced a blessing. Blessed is the womb that bare thee and the paps which gave thee suck. As this lady complimented the Savior and his family, no doubt, specifically his mother, Jesus had a response. In verse 28, the response was this, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. And with that, the scene shifts to another enterprise in the life of our Savior. Marvelous indeed is the interesting statement made by this unnamed woman and also the response made by the Son of God himself. Let's give a little more diligent attention to not only what she's uttered, but also what the Savior replied as we look at that beatitude found here in the gospel according to Luke. As we make preparation and ready to do that, I might openly make note of an interesting observation about the initial statement made by Jesus. If you're reading in the King James translation, you may have noted it appears to read something like this. Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Where it would seem the word yes, the word yea, if you will, is a statement that in fact gives appropriate approval to what the woman had uttered and then extends it. It might be interesting to observe in the Greek text the word yes or yea is not present. That may be of benefit to us as we march forward in our study of the text as well here in just a few moments. Without further ado, may I suggest four lessons that we might utilize and extract to help us in our understanding more deeply of the Word of God. And the first one is this one. Making use of a statement there made by the woman in which she said, Blessed is the womb that bare thee. Here this lady calls attention no doubt in great praise and a great intent to heap upon Jesus and his family the word that is due by virtue of his preaching and who he was. She pronounced a blessing upon the one, the womb that bare indeed or gave birth to our Savior. You and I know that woman's name to be Mary. She was, in fact, the young virgin girl who, in fact, the Holy Spirit came upon and led ultimately to his birth in Luke chapters 1 and 2. But isn't it interesting here to note perhaps from the perspective of a parent. And if you happen to be a parent, you perhaps know well some of the things of which I'm about to speak. It brings a great deal of satisfaction, doesn't it, when you see your children make the right decisions. And when you see them orient themselves in a way of wisdom and to pursue matters that are honorable and holy and godly. No doubt this lady specifically as a mother perhaps herself was aware that whoever the lady was that was the mother of this man that was preaching must have been a very proud woman and a mother because notice the good things that her son was accomplishing. The power of his message, the great crowds following him and listening to the gospel that he proclaimed. 
No doubt this woman wished merely to compliment Jesus and his mother and the family for the wisdom that he presented and the exhibition of the godliness that he set forth. You and I as parents also no doubt feel a sense of honor when our children also make those decisions that are wise. Notice the Bible does exhort us to honor our parents. That lady was doing the same to Jesus' mother even as far back as, as the book of Exodus. And in fact, the Ten Commandments uttered on that occasion, written in fact with the very finger of God on the tables of stone, Moses brought down from that mount the following, Honor thy father and thy mother. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. That very thought again helped ancient Israel to appreciate that parents are worthy of the respect of their children, worthy of the honor that should be accorded to them, so important was that it was reiterated verbatim in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16. Stated again. Notice there was a promise with the, both of those renderings. Honor thy father and thy mother that it may be well with thee, that thou mayest in fact live long upon the earth. Young person, if you wish to have the happiness that life here would have you to enjoy, that God would wish you to enjoy, do not overlook God, of course, but one of the things that we each should learn is to honor our parents, to understand the authority that God has vested in them, and to appreciate that their dictums and their rules, though you may not always like them, they are for your good. They are for that which would lead to greater healthfulness and a greater appreciation for that which you soon will appreciate as you grow in life. This lady, as she made this statement concerning Mary, the mother of Jesus, maybe leads us to understand that Jesus, by his statement, did not say that the lady had spoken incorrectly. Notice he did not say that parents are not to be honored. In fact, he himself lived a life in which he honored his own parents, and yet he was the Son of God. In Luke, the second chapter, beginning in verse 41, on an occasion in which Jesus was but 12 years of age, he went to the place with his parents to observe one of the major observances and festivals of the Old Testament, the Passover, in fact. And yet, as his parents were making their way in the direction of homeward, they had left Jesus behind. For three days, he was without them. And yet, when they did come back and finally make reacquaintance with him, isn't it amazing that on that occasion, first of all, they did speak with him somewhat directly. Son, why hast thou done this and thus? Jesus did respond, though, wished ye not that I must be about my father's business, Luke 2.49. And might we also remember two verses later. It is stated that Jesus went up to, his, to the house and was subject unto them. Jesus, you see, though the Son of God was subject unto his parents, and later, even while suspended on the cross, with all the agony of the world hanging upon his shoulders, due to the sin that he was carrying, he nonetheless, seeing Mary nearby, Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. Committing unto John the care, and the careful care, if you will, of his mother. Jesus honored his parents. May we in wisdom and in urgency ever not only seek to do the same, but teach that of those about us that they may also see the importance of that. But not only this statement that the lady has made, leading us to appreciate the honor that's rightly accorded to parents, 
Let us look at yet a second lesson that you and I might extract and draw. It has to do specifically with Mary. And might I begin by making this observation. Mary is not to be worshipped. I use that as a particular lesson for our study tonight because there are some in our world who do not appreciate the force of that statement. In fact, there are many, amazingly, around the world who, in fact, do accord to Mary a degree of veneration, a degree, in fact, of worship, so much so that it would do us well to visit somewhat more carefully the issue of this text before us and the rest of the Bible's teaching upon this subject. Let's first place Mary in her proper position and context. From the time of Genesis 3.15 onward, we know that it was the plan and power and will of God that the seed of woman, as it would be present upon this earth, would in fact crush the head of the serpent, the devil himself, and be the thoroughfare that leads to the salvation of the human family. That was in fact the very promise God made to the devil in Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve had sinned in the Garden of Eden, God in fact addressing each of them and meeting out the punishments to them, God in fact to the serpent said, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Now notice the seed of woman is thus under discussion. A recognition that through the very nature of the birth due to a woman would come into the world the one who would crush, in fact, the power of the devil. As that verse rolls onward, that in fact, in essence, is what God states, isn't it? For to that very serpent he may note that it shall crush thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. It, the seed of woman, will crush the head of the devil. This morning we noted in 1 John 3 verse 8 that in fact that was the purpose of why the Savior came. In fact, in those very language and words again, for this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Uttered also in Hebrews 2.14 is a very similar statement. As we appreciate then, from that time onward almost certainly, Jewish women would have looked forward to the time when perhaps they, or through their lineage, would be given the prized honor from heaven to give birth to the seed of woman that would crush the head of the serpent. Many a Jewish lady, no doubt, must have wished and hoped that it would be either her or one of her children. In fact, it would seem in Ruth chapter 4, even Ruth and Naomi clutched tightly to that hope that would certainly have rested within a Jewish lady or woman. However, the centuries rolled by and the Savior hadn't come. The Old Testament closed and still the Savior had not come. But in the opening chapter of Matthew, we quickly learned that the time was soon to be. For we have the genealogy of Jesus presented, and wasn't it stated later by Paul in Galatians 4 verse 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law. That woman, hand-selected by the God of heaven, was Mary. That virgin mentioned in Luke chapter 1, also in Luke 2, that would in fact give birth to Jesus himself. No doubt she appreciated the honor that was accorded to her. For in Luke chapter 1, when in fact the angel presented to her the fact of what was about to happen, she in humble fashion respectfully asked, How can this be, seeing I know not a man? It was then she was told in Luke 1.35, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, for that holy thing that is of thee shall be called the Son of God. 
Not many verses later, she sang a beautiful hymn that exalted the name of God for the helpfulness that he had extended to Israel and especially to her. And in that sense, she did appreciate the honor that was accorded to her on that occasion. But that does lead us to revisit the thought we uttered a bit earlier. What about then the honor of worshiping Mary? Is that what the scriptures teach? Is that the thought maybe that this lady had in mind who stated to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bare thee. Was it her thinking and was it her suggestion that in fact Mary is deserving of worship? Let us think a little bit more carefully about that. And I've listed a statement next that it would seem to be so very appropriate. If it were the case that it was the will of heaven... For Mary to be worshipped, this in Luke 11, 27 and 28 was the ideal time for Jesus to teach that. For this lady had opened the discussion, and why then, if that be the will of heaven, didn't Jesus say, absolutely? But yet he did not. In fact, as I noted earlier, that word yes is even missing in the, in the Greek text. Jesus did not teach that which some in our world would wish or think that it does. In fact, might we say the Roman Catholic Church teaches specifically and various popes have given enunciations and decrees concerning the thought that Mary is worthy of worship. Not only that, the Episcopal Church, which is of course just an offshoot of the Roman Catholic, teaches the same. I've listed a few thoughts that you may have heard of with respect to Mary. I've listed these not at all to say that the list is exhaustive, just some that no doubt you and I might be aware of. These organizations of which we've spoken teach that prayers should be uttered through Mary. They furthermore teach that she is, in fact, the mother of God. And furthermore, that she should actually be called the mother of the church. Furthermore, might it be noted that she is said to have a specific role in the salvation of all humanity. And many of the doctrines related to her, in fact, have a name of their own. They're under the subset of what's called Mariology, the study of Mary, the study of the various doctrines and ideas related to her. Continuing onward, she is given two rather, rather interesting names, especially by the Catholic Church, a co-redemptrix. Perhaps the second word of that somewhat unusual word sets it, uh, says it best she has a role in human redemption, according to them. That there's something to be said for her giving birth to Jesus by which you and I all, by some ways, redeemed. Notice she's also called a mediatrix. Again, a word referring to a supposed mediatorial role that she possesses between God and us. I say all that to say this. There's a significant Mariological doctrine in this world concerning her. I wonder, does the Bible substantiate it? Does it teach it? Does it endorse such? Might I ask you first to notice, Mary is not to be worshipped. Jesus did not affirm it at all in this text. In fact, notice some other things that flow directly from not only this text, but some others as well. God alone is to be worshipped. In Matthew 4, verse 10, on the scene when Jesus was being tempted, the third occasion he made this observation and this declarative sentence. As, G, as he himself was tempted to fall down and worship the devil, Jesus said, It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. 
Might we note the word only? That would exclusively eliminate all except the Godhead. Only God is to be worshipped. What about this notion of a mediatrix? The inspired apostle made this statement in 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. No mention at all, interestingly enough, of Mary. We do not, of course, intend at all to slight her of anything concerning the honor that God gave her to give birth to the Savior. But she is not the thoroughfare by which you and I reach heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And isn't it still a remarkable thing to appreciate that if you and I are interested in looking more intently into this thought, if it were the case that Mary had a mediatorial role, why didn't Peter mention it on Pentecost? Where is it in all the book of Acts when time after time individuals are converted to the Savior and Mary's not mentioned a single time in Acts? Where is it in the Roman account? Not a single time is she mentioned. And might I suggest... You would think that the single book that certainly would make mention of it, if such were the case, must be Hebrews. For Hebrews is the gem of the Bible books, tying together everything concerning the salvation of the human family. And yet in Hebrews 7.25, who is it that brings us to God? Mary is not mentioned. In fact, speaking of Christ, it is said of Him, Wherefore He is able also to bring us to God seeing he is able to bring intercession. Who is it then that offers intercession? It is the Savior. It is a marvelous thing to appreciate that Mary gave birth to Jesus, and then she in many ways slides off the biblical stage. She's not the centerpiece. Her son is. In fact, the remainder of the New Testament centers around him. This second lesson has highlighted no worship for Mary, but there's two more lessons it would seem worthy of our appreciation. Might we also notice the bottom one on that same slide? Those who we have mentioned earlier teach this especial character and this especial worship and reverence for Mary also state that because she gave birth to Jesus and you and I are the children of God by faith in Him, that those, in fact, should experience a special physical linkage to God through her. Now notice, a special physical linkage to God through her, through Mary. That means there's something physical about the nature that God offers to the human family through her. Is that true? We certainly should at least give a passing thought to that idea. I've listed some things for your consideration. First of all, a host of passages, both Old and New Testament, would not only call that into question, but would seemingly destroy it with immediacy. A physical linkage. Might we remember that in Ezekiel 18.20? That bold prophet down by the river Kibar in ancient Babylonian captivity made this statement. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. But the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Each one stands individually with respect to the judgment bar of God, and there is no special linkage or a respect of persons given to those who can claim any kind of physical linkage through Mary. 
Now, we do know that Mary did physically give birth following Jesus by way of Joseph to other children. Matthew 13, 55 lists four of them. Even if a person could literally trace his heritage back to those, they would not have any more honored place before God than you and me. Physical linkage to God does not come physically through Mary. How was it Paul affirmed that in Galatians 3? You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. He said nothing about physical birth. Children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It is in the watery grave of baptism that we are called into the family of God and adopted by Him. And it's in that case we can wear His name proudly, Christian, and furthermore have within us the fact of inheriting from Him. Romans chapter 8. Verses 14 to 17. Perhaps one final thought about that point. Interestingly enough, concerning a statement Jesus made on another occasion. There was a time when he was preaching. A large audience and throng was surrounding him. And his mother and physical half-brothers were in the distance, desiring to speak with him. Do you remember the statement responded and uttered by Jesus? In fact, when word was shared with him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren wish to speak with thee. Jesus looked toward the audience surrounding him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. Who was it then, in Mark 3, verses 31 to 35, that had the singular opportunity and privilege of standing approvedly before God? He said, my mother and my brethren. Referring to that audience, listening to the Word of God and appreciating the power and thrust of it. May we appreciate the same today, that there is no substitute for this book, which leads us, interestingly enough, to the fourth and final point. I'm sure from verse 28 we would have expected that given that Jesus emphasized this point, you and I should do the same. After that lady had made the statement that she did, Jesus responded in verse 28, Rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Isn't that an interesting statement? This lady had had an intent to direct some attention to the mother of Jesus, and yet he, rather than pronouncing a blessing upon his mother, pronounced a blessing upon all who would hear the word of God and obey it. That speaks volumes, doesn't it? That, in fact, opens up an entire new venue to appreciate how is it that one finds a perfect happiness, the word beatitude means that, and perfect blessedness before God. Is it not, in fact, by hearing his word and by putting it into practice, hearing his word and keeping it, Hearing his word and obeying it, the Bible is the word of God. Over and over again, we're reminded of that fact. What about the ancient prophets of the Old Testament? For those individuals of that day and time, as in the case of Jeremiah, O oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord, Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-nine. Jeremiah thus called attention to the fact that he was proclaiming the word of God. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 God is specifically told Ezekiel, Son of man, go and speak with my words unto Israel. What was Ezekiel to speak? My words, God said. In Jeremiah 1, verse 9, Behold, I've put my words in thy mouth, Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah had the liberty and privilege thus of proclaiming God's word. And it's that word that was referenced in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The overwhelming power and might then of the word of God and yet Jesus said, blessed are they that hear it. You and I should take every available opportunity to hear it. Being present at the worship services and the Bible studies, every opportunity we have to hear it, so that by that we can instill it within our hearts. No wonder the psalmist declared in Psalm 119, verse 11, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. If you and I ever expect to thwart off the fiery darts of the evil one, and to be of clear enough vision to see the schemes and snares and plots the devil has in our way. The only way to be able to see them clearly with the vision of God is to use his word. No wonder Jesus three times quoted scripture in Matthew 4 when he was tempted. It is written. It is written. It is written. If Jesus quoted Scripture to chase the devil away, ought not you and I be prepared to do the same? Understanding that on our own, we can't chase him away, but by the power of God through his word. This is a matter strong enough the devil can't overcome it. As you and I appreciate then the word of God and the opportunities availed unto us to hear it, may we, in addition to hearing that, appreciate that hearing is necessary. And the Bible, in fact, states that. Consider the Revelation. Seven times as John wrote to those churches of the Revelation, how often did he say, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. All seven churches were told that. As you and I have ears to hear, may we be wise enough to hear. And in Romans 10, beginning in verse 13, Paul, in fact, emphasized the same. There he said, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he began to describe the following. And how shall they call on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? May we understand then the necessity of hearing the word, but not only to hear it, for that alone is insufficient. Notice Jesus said, and keep it. It will be a sad thing indeed to stand at the judgment bar of God on that day, having heard it, and perhaps to feel a degree of comfort thinking, well, I heard it. Will not God grant me an eternity in heaven? At least I heard it. My friend, hearing it is not enough. In Matthew 7, in fact, Jesus, beginning in verse number 21, had something to say about some who no doubt had heard at least parts of it. For do you remember he said, Many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name did many wonderful works. You see, they had a knowledge of the Savior. They knew something about him. They had heard to some degree the character of some elements of the gospel. But what was the Savior's response? Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Interesting, they thought they knew him, but he didn't know them. And so they will forever be barred from entrance into heaven. You see, not hearing the word is not enough. And is it any wonder that James emphasized the same? In James 1.22, was it not he who said, 
And be not hearers of the word only, but be doers. May we thus implement in our life, keep, if you will, the utter sayings of the word of God, and allow them to redound unto the action and to the works and to the faith that God would have in mind for us. We might be reminded of a statement made in the Hebrew letter, Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Speaking of the Savior, it begins this way. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Those that are the recipients of eternal salvation are those that obey him. No wonder Jesus said, Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. The Bible, both Old and New Testament, exalts and praises the wisdom of those who in fact not only heard the word of God like Noah, but did exactly what he said to do. And thus the compliment is paid to him in Genesis 6.22. Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Notice a bit later that the same thing is stated of Moses in Exodus 40.16. These thoughts have perhaps encouraged us to appreciate that the road to salvation is not paved with intentions. Intentions will not be sufficient, not be adequate, not be that which will be in fact approved by God, but rather, what about the works and the intentions? Perhaps in summary to our lesson tonight, could we not perhaps make these statements? We've studied about this beatitude in the gospel according to Luke. And in that beatitude, we saw, no doubt, the thoughtful statement of a lady whose name is not revealed to us. As Jesus expounded upon what she said, we've learned four lessons. And among those four lessons, we have encountered these. We notice that, of course, parents are to be honored. Jesus was in no way teaching opposite to that. But he was, in fact, at the position of saying, Mary is not to be worshipped. In fact, no human is to be worshipped. Our third lesson that we came to appreciate and realize, there is no physical linkage to God by virtue of any physical linkage through Mary. And finally, the appreciation of being doers of the Word and not just hearers only. Perhaps tonight as we each analyze and examine our life, we've been able to appreciate and learn some things from this conversation between Jesus, this lady, and that audience is you and I have been encouraged to keep the Word of God, not just to hear it, but to keep it. May we implement at once the things that would bring us into proper relationship with God. Are you a Christian? Have you openly and submissively come before the God of heaven by virtue of the blood of His Son? If you haven't, let tonight be the night. There will never be another time better than this one, the 21st of September, 2008. Your spiritual birthday, it could be. Jesus demands this of you. You must believe him to be the Son of God, John 8, 24. You must repent of those sins that have separated you and distanced you from God. Without that repentance, there should be no forgiveness, Acts 2, 38. You then must confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God, 1 John 4, 15. And then be baptized, allowing yourself to be buried, that old man of sin, buried in the water grave of baptism, for because you've now turned in repentance to God, that old man's dead. We bury that which is dead. When you come forth from that watery grave, you're a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And in that sense, Romans 6, verse 4, you can walk in newness of life.
Would you like to begin that new life tonight? Everything's prepared and ready. We could assist you. If though you have become a Christian but have wandered from the fold of God, you're no longer holding to the hand of the Savior. Come back to that first love. Take not another step without Him at your side. If we can pray on your behalf tonight in regard to the repentance and confession of the sins in your life, we'd be happy and honored to do that. If either of these things tonight would be the need of your life, hesitate not if you would, but please come even now while together we stand and while we sing.